Amen. Hey, this morning we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. So as you're making your way there, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 23. We're back in continuing our series on Christian worship. So let me just kind of remind you of uh, where we left off. We were in the Gospel of John last week for our uh, family worship service. And so let me just remind you of where Jesse left off, catch us up on chapter 9, and, and then we'll work through as Paul gives us a, a word. And so chapter 9 uh, opens up, and as has been true for the majority of the issues uh, that the Corinthians have libeled against Paul, they in some sense reject his authority. They think that he has no real ability to, to bring it when he's in the pulpit, they think he's weak. They think somebody like Apollos would do a much better job. And then the same idea kind of turns on funding. And so he begins to build in 1 through 14 this idea that he has every right to expect them to contribute to his mission. He has every right to expect those in Corinth to give to him to uh, fund his missionary endeavor. He says, in the same way, verse 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. In essence, look, you need to understand the things that I'm doing, this is Paul writing, the things that I'm doing, I have every right to expect that you guys should pay me, that you should support me, and that the service that I'm offering is valuable, and you need to hear it, and it's good for you. But when we turn it, we begin to think about it in terms of Christian worship, and so Paul, in, in this kind of exposition of Christian worship, what we find is an assignment of worth in somebody outside of me. And this is something that we all tend to struggle with. It's easy in some sense to think that, that I have worth and that I have value and that my opinion has merit and it's to be heeded. But to extend that same thing to somebody else, somebody who holds a differing opinion, a different lifestyle, a different worldview than my own, is challenging. But worship that is distinctly Christian cannot be satisfied with my voice and my voice alone being heard. It is only ever satisfied when we together corporately bring in and worship God together. Christian worship has a wonderful togetherness aspect of it. And, and because of the togetherness aspect of Christian worship, just as Jesse prayed, so too it calls us to sacrifice as individuals. This is difficult because sacrifice is painful. Now, perfunctory or cursory sacrifice, uh, just kind of giving things that don't matter and, and, and relinquishing rights that, 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 that aren't all that necessary, those things are simple and those things are easy, but those things can't rightly be rendered and, and understood as sacrifice. That's just lip service or that's just living in a way that other people would see my life and say, what a good guy he is or what a great girl she is. So I want you to see right from the very beginning that even though Paul has laid out this wonderful account, this argument that he should be paid, look at how he begins in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. In essence, he has them right there. Imagine getting into an argument with your spouse or with your friend, and you can see like it's clicking in their head. They're coming around to your perspective. You're going to get to see the movie you wanted to see. You're going to get to eat whatever you want to get to eat. You're going to get whatever it is you're arguing for. You have them right there. And then you say, but I'm not going to make use of that. 
So you've brought them in, you've captivated them, you've won them over to your perspective, and then in that moment, this is how you love them. You say, I'm not going to make any use of that. So Paul has them there. He has them there to the point where they would be willing, they're bought in, they're believing, they would give to him, they would support him financially, and he says, but I make no use of that. And so it creates in our mind a question, why, Paul? Why would you lead them to this place and not press in? Why would you expose them to the truth as you've laid it out and not press in? Look what he goes on. He says, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. There's no sleight of hand. Like the insistence that he's not going to use these rights isn't meant to elicit a greater response in them to say, no, we're going to give this to you. We want to give this to you. We want to contribute financially to you. He says, that's not what I'm doing. Now look at his heart. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of the ground of my boasting. Paul looks at his relationship to the Corinthians, to a people that malign him, to a people that doubt him, to a people that look at his apostolic authority that he has seen the risen Christ, and they say, that's not such a big deal. They look at his teaching and say, we could find better. They look at his commands and say, that's just not that great. And he looks at them, and he looks at his responsibility to them. And he said, I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my boasting. Look what he goes on to describe and and, and to give us evidence of what his boasting is. He says, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. In essence, he said, look, if I'm out there and I'm communicating the truth of God to you, you have to understand something. That in and of itself gives me no ground for boasting. And it's like, okay, well, I still don't understand what you're talking about. I still don't understand where you're going. Look at why. He says, for necessity is laid upon me. Necessity is laid upon me. So Paul gives us the understanding that the reason he can't boast is because he can do no other. Now, if we were to take time and to go look at Acts 9 and to look at Acts 26, you would read about and, and see laid out uh, how Luke has laid out Paul's call to ministry. How Paul, on his road from persecuting Christians, traveling to Damascus to persecute more Christians, his plans are interrupted by God. The sky is ripped, and a bright light calls Paul to, to the gospel fidelity. He calls him to faithfulness in Jesus Christ. His plans are interrupted, and what we read as we continue in Acts 9 and Acts 26 is that Paul can do none other than be faithful to the one who has called him. And so Paul sees his exposition, he sees his teaching, he sees his engagement there in Corinth and other places, not as an opportunity to attract followers, not as an opportunity to get paid, not as an opportunity to grow in fame, but as an opportunity to be faithful to Jesus. He says, necessity is laid upon me. Look at what he asks. Look at what he asks. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Jeremiah said something similar of himself in Jeremiah chapter 20 and verse 9. He said, if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. Think on that. Each of us have been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
If you are here in this place today and you are a believer and follower of Jesus, you have been entrusted with the gospel. And you've been entrusted with the gospel not just so that you can care for it and provide it and nurture it and make sure that it thrives in your life, but you've been entrusted with the gospel for someone else's life, for someone else's well-being. And we hear Jeremiah talk about it, and he says, when I think of God and his goodness, and I think of the message that he has has given me to proclaim, and know this, friends, the message Jeremiah was given to proclaim was incredibly difficult, and it would mean his suffering. But he said, when I think about this, and when I think about holding it in, it's like trapping a fire in my body, and I can't do that. So then Paul turns and, and And you should know that Paul is working as a tent maker, that he's supporting himself in addition to getting out and communicating the gospel so that he wouldn't be a burden on others. And he says when it it turns on this idea of whether or not to preach the gospel, whether or not to communicate the gospel, woe is me if I don't preach it. This is the sense of internal turmoil just beginning to think of what it would be like not to communicate the gospel. Now think about that in terms of your own life. With the regularity and the the, the passion that you put into communicating the gospel. Most of us, it's not woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, but woe is me if I have to communicate the gospel. Right? We're looking for the best possible set of circumstances which require the least amount from us. God, if I'm in that place and the person comes to me and they know my name and they ask me to explain the gospel and there's nobody else in the room that I could possibly hand off to, then woe is me if I don't invite them to church next Sunday. This is kind of our handoff. Like we laugh and we snicker, but this is kind of our, our normal manner and understanding of what it is for us to steward the gospel well. It's not communicating the gospel with others. It's looking for somebody else to hand that responsibility off to. So we don't actually want to be entrusted with the gospel. We want to be entrusted with the information whereby they could find out about the gospel. But think about the passion that should exist within every Christian heart. It's this passion that understanding that the gospel should well up inside of us and it should overflow to everywhere we go. That we should be so incredibly burdened with others that we can't help but communicate the gospel. So if I were to come up to you and I'd say, uh, listen, Dave, I want you to quit communicating the gospel. Listen, Jane, I want you to quit communicating the gospel. Listen, Dave, I want you to quit communicating the gospel. You would drop kick me to the face and say, mind your own business. You say, how can I do that? You're asking me to do something that would be completely disingenuous to myself because woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Let us be burdened. Let our hearts be drawn in and captivated by God's love. Paul goes on, he says, For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. In essence, he's saying, look, if I, if I go out and I preach the gospel, you should know that I, am, that I am burdened, that it is of necessity that I preach it. But if I do preach it, not out of necessity, I have a reward. Paul recognizes that the gospel is the reward. He goes on, he says, what then is my reward? That am I preaching, am I present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? Paul writes to those in Corinth, and he says, you owe me money, in essence. 
you owe me money for preaching the gospel. And, and they're awakened to this idea in 9, 1 through 14. And they're getting ready to give it to him. And then in 15, he stops and says, but I'll make no use of it. You will not rob me of the joy I have of giving the gospel to you free of charge. I do not work for pay. I work for God's good pleasure. And what he gives them in 19 through 23 is a principalizing statement in 19. And then in 20 through 22, he really begins to kind of unpack it in terms of illustration. And I just want us to walk through this and spend some time understanding it. So he opens up in 19. He has this wonderful statement. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now, this first century understanding, you had the ability to do a couple of things. And so let's say... Uh, that you had accrued great debt. You owed a lot of money. You owed a lot of money to a lot of people who weren't very kind, so they're going to start breaking your fingers and then your toes, and, and then you'd really get ugly and in pain. And so you say, look, I know a way out of this. I'm going to sell myself into slavery. And so I sell myself into slavery, and I come into this home, and let's say I have a Jewish heritage or I have a Greek heritage, and I end up in a home that has an opposite heritage and a worldview than my own. Well, because I'm in their home and because I'm sold to them, my worldview has to stem from their worldview. And so if it is a Jewish family, then, then I find myself moving in this vein because I have no rights, I have no freedoms in this place. I'm bought in. I am their property in this scenario. Or let's say it's the opposite deal, and I'm, and I'm a Jew, and I, I sell myself into slavery, and it's a Greek household, and, it, and, and they worship kind of the pantheon of Greek gods. Well, I find myself not correcting their worldview. That would be ludicrous, and it would be a miserable experience for a slave, but I find myself moving and adopting their worldview, moving and espousing the things they say. Now, that sounds heavy. That's, that sounds overwhelming. But this is absolutely the language Paul uses. Paul goes in and he uses this idea and he says, look, I, I'm free. I have all freedoms. There is nothing constraining me, nothing restricting me. I am free from all. And essence, saying, I owe nobody nothing. But I made myself a slave to all for the express purpose that the gospel might be pronounced in their life, that they might become Christian worshipers. So if you're to kind of just take stock of your life and how you make decisions and how you see and, and discern the lives of those around you, would this statement be true of you? That your life is lived in service to others, that being free from all, and if you're a follower or believer in Jesus Christ, then you are free from all. But being free, would you gladly endeavor to make yourself a slave to all for their benefit? So Paul asks this question of the Corinthians. And then he moves through and he gives them an example. And I want us to follow through this. He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. Now this is, this is interesting, especially in light of the fact that Paul himself is Jewish, right? So this should be an easy thing for us. For, so for Paul in essence to say, to the Jews, I became a Jew, we're like, all right, so you, just, you were yourself, basically. That's what you're telling us here. You were yourself, you were Jewish. If you read through Philippians 3, you read that, that Paul talks about his former manner of advancing in Judaism. And he says, I was advancing at a greater rate than everybody else. I was uh, circumcised the way I was supposed to be. I was a Pharisee. I was amazing. And when people looked at me, they said, no, this is the guy we want to be. This is how we want to be if we're going to be Jewish. Paul said, I forsook all of that. 
I considered all of that as refuse and trash for the goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. But in terms of looking at the Jew, he looks at them and he says, this is a person worthy of God's goodness. This is a person deserving of God's love. This is a person for whom Jesus Christ died. So when Paul looks at them, when he apprises who they are, he says, this is a person worthy of my appropriating their cultural sensitivities. So he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. And I want you to see the links that he went to to attain this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 24, Paul's talking about, he has this whole list of things and ways he was suffering for the gospel, being shipwrecked and being beaten and being hungry and, and being lost at sea and, and, and just all these things and being in prison. Then you get to chapter 11 and verse 24, and he says, five times I received from the Jews the 39 lashes. So when Paul looks at the Jew and he thinks of his love for them, he's not struggling in his mind to think about how difficult it is to move in and to love these people. He's not thinking about, oh, this is going to be so great, this is going to be so wonderful. In Paul's mind, when he says these things, he knows what it's like to be beaten by them. See, Paul's normal, normal manner of existence and missionary endeavor, whenever he would come to a new city, he would find himself in the synagogue. And going into the synagogue, he would read from the scriptures. And reading from the scriptures, he would point them to Jesus. And pointing to Jesus, he would excite their anger. So he'd travel to the next city, and you'd think he'd learn, but no, he'd go in and he'd open up the scriptures, and opening up the scriptures, again, he'd point them to Jesus, and pointing them to Jesus, again, he would excite their anger. So five times he allowed himself to be beaten by his Jewish brothers. Five times he allowed himself to suffer. And each time he redoubled his efforts out of a desire to see them come to know Jesus. So begin to ask this question. Do you really value the people around you? Are you willing to be a servant to all? Are you willing to suffer so that someone else might come to know Jesus? So he writes and he continues. He says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. And he reminds us, he says, look, you need to understand, they're not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. So Paul says, look, and so you understand the Jews, but, but there's this whole set of people there's this whole set of people, and they're good people. And in the New Testament, they're referred to as God-fears. And so they're not Jews, but they want to be. And they think that the way to get there is by rigorous keeping of the law. And he said, okay, there's a dietary restriction. We'll keep that. Okay, there's a clothing restriction. Okay, we'll keep that. Okay, there's a, the way that we do this. We'll keep that. Where's a rule? Because I want to keep it. So Paul, when he spends time with these people, he doesn't step in and say, look, the first thing you need to know is you're all idiots. Having established that, let me tell you why you're an idiot. He doesn't systematically move in and begin to deconstruct their worldview. He moves in seeing in them people who think in their heart that they can attain to God by the keeping of rules and regulations. And we would say, we're not so different. When we encounter moralizers, we encounter people in our society that think it's just by being good, it's just by doing the right thing, that it's all going to kind of wash out in the end. So Paul goes to these people and he recognizes that they too are people made in the image and the likeness of God, that they too are people for whom Christ died, that they too are those deserving of his care. And he said, when I came to these people, I contextualized my ministry, contextualized my life. 
I translated my life into language, into expressions that they would understand for their benefit. So begin to say, are you, are you saying that Paul compromised on his theology? No, that's not true. He didn't compromise on his theology. He didn't compromise on who God is. He didn't compromise on the exclusivity of Jesus. He loved people, and he did it with words that they understood. So then Paul goes to a group, and we'd say, oh, man, this must have been super tough for him. He went for the Jews. He went for the people. Like good people leaning in and doing the right things. They're just slightly misdirected. He just needs to set them off on the right path. But he goes to this group of people and he says, verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. It's basically those with no regard for the law. Gentiles, those cast off, those that if you were to ask Jews, if you were to ask the God-fears, if you were to ask some Christians, what does God say about these people? He'd say they're stricken and far off. God has no love for them. He says, look, I'm not outside the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ. And it's this idea of being captivated and under the law of Christ, which so captivated Paul and which stands the, the, the possibility of tremendously affecting the way that we engage and reach people. In Matthew 22, chapter 22, uh, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is. And, and you could summarize it and say it's love God and love people. But he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So we see as Paul looked at these people, people who had no regard for the law, no regard for God. He says, they're worthy. He said, they're made in the image and the likeness of God. They're people for whom Jesus died. They are deserving of his love, and I will be the one to give it to them. So Paul goes out and he sees those who are outside of the law and he doesn't engage in a corrective of worldview. He doesn't begin to systematically describe to them how their immorality is, is permeating and how they're destroying society and how they're really this stain on good people. In Acts 17, we see this wonderfully sensitive and beautiful exposition of Scripture. In fact, he, he exegetes, he studies, he knows well their culture and he speaks their culture. Starting in verse 22 of Acts 17, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, To the unknown God. Now look at the bridge he's getting ready to build and walk across. He says, What therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands as though needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, and having determined a lot of their periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, so that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. And it would make sense in our minds, right? That if Paul were then to turn and to connect this to, to some previous statement of Jesus, this idea that God is not far from each one of us, and perhaps that in the dark as we're reaching out we could find him, but Paul quotes two of their own theologians. He quotes two of their own men of knowledge. He says, in him we live and move and have our being, even so some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Do you see the gospel sensitivity Paul has when he moves out to contextualize? 
My fear for many of us is that we are good people seeking to address the wrong things. So we see our LGBTQ neighbors and we go out and we address their lifestyle. We don't see them as people made in the image and the likeness of God. We see them as something marred and something broken, something we can fix. And so we want to address their lifestyle and we want to change their lifestyle to make it to something that my kids won't embarrass me when they ask questions about. Do you see the heart of God here, though? Not moving and seeking to destroy somebody and to break them down, to bring them to nothing, but to seeking to validate the love of God for this person. You will seldom share the gospel with somebody you agree with 100%. Perhaps God will give you that goodness and that clarity. But most of the people that you're going to agree with will be the people you choose to have in your small group of friends. But it is in the goodness and loving kindness of our God that he places us around people that we vehemently disagree with. People that we would say, are you nuts? Are you crazy? I can't believe you think this is right. This color is red and you're saying it's chartreuse. I mean, come, can't you see? Are you colorblind? But God has no other plan for to reach the lost other than you and me. God has no other plan. He's got no other recourse. It really seems to me, in the main, to be a bad idea to entrust the gospel to you and me. For one, most of us are mute when it comes to sharing the gospel. I'd really rather somebody else do it. And two... We're bigoted in the most sanctified of ways. We're not out and out racist. But we absolutely entertain and don't speak out to racism. We're not out and out awful people. But when we hear awful things said about immigrants, about poor people, about people we disagree with, we don't stand up for them. Paul calls us to. And what the gospel calls us to is a rapid contextualization of everything we have for the benefit of someone else. I'm not asking you to go out and to validate every bad decision you made out there so that you could make friends with this person so that somehow your friendship could lead them to Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. I'm asking you to stop being so terrible. I'm asking you to lovingly disagree. Asking myself the same things. That when I see somebody I disagree with, my mind doesn't automatically move. How can I dissect? <laughs> They're crazy, and how can I direct them to something true? But how could my love of Jesus be so incredibly pronounced that they'd be drawn to this? That my love of them through the gospel would give me a bridge to walk across that I could then have the legitimate grounds to stand on and say, He loves you and He is worthy. He's worthy for you to abandon the pursuits that, you've, that you have set out. He's worthy for you to abandon what this world calls good. Paul says this, I do this so that it might win those outside the law. He says, to the weak I became weak. 
Now in 8.13, he told us, he says, the way that I'm doing this is by not availing myself of the right of eating meat sacrificed to idols. And one of the difficult things of growing in your faith is you're going to be surrounded by people who don't take it as seriously as you do. I show up to church, and it's a joke. They want to be seen. They just write just inane dribble. They espouse kind of bumper sticker theology. And they see you exercising your freedoms in Jesus, and you feel constantly kind of dragged down by these people. Or maybe this is who you are, and you're dragging those around, and you think everybody around you is so incredibly prideful because they're moving and experiencing these wonderful delights of what it is to be mature in faith in Jesus Christ. It's Paul, this pillar of the faith, this man who wrote over half the New Testament, when he looks at his weak brother and sister in Jesus Christ, he doesn't say, suck it up, you Nancy, get with it. He doesn't say that because that expression wasn't around yet. You guys haven't laughed much today. But he sees this as a person who the gospel has so much room left to grow in. This is where we are. This is this beautiful, wide expression of faith in Jesus Christ that all of us get to worship Jesus together at the same time. And that makes it wonderful and terrible. It makes it beautiful and awful at the same time. Because it's so much more difficult. Paul says, to the weak, I became weak. Now look at this all-encompassing statement he has here lest you have found some place to hide yourself. He says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Each of us have a group of people, a type of people that we most readily resonate with. Within this church, we have Republicans, and they are insane. We have people who think that Republicans are liberal. And, and those people really are insane. And then we have, come on now. <laughs> this gets tense. Talk about politics. Like, we're already talking about religion, so I just thought I'd lump the other one in. <laughs> but we, ha- we have Democrats, and we have Libertarians, and we have Green Party people, and we have, we have folks from every political brand that you can think of, all in one body. Did you know that your, your job as a Republican and Christian isn't just to see Republicans elected to office, your primary job is to be a Christian, to see the gospel more beautiful in the life of somebody else, in the life of somebody that you would disagree with fundamentally on so incredibly many things. We have such great ease splitting into parties, splitting into people groups. We have the group that's for Proposition A within Greenville. We have the group that's against Proposition A, and then we have a whole host of signs that are really ambiguous, and every time I drive past it, I think, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Can I be both four teachers? And I just, like, I'm just so confused. Like, what is this whatever? And we want to assign blame because that's so much easier. So we blast the school board, and we say they're all incompetent, or we talk about the superintendent and say he's an awful man, he's stealing money. Because we want to assign blame, because if we have blame, then we can move on to fix it. Do you know that everybody you disagree with is an opportunity for you to contextualize your point of view and perspective so that you might reach them for the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you can't do this if you've just called them an idiot. You can't do this if you've just vilified them. You can't do this if you've just sought to systematically move in and dismantle their world and perspective. You can't do this if you've just absolutely dressed them down with your word. 
Do you see the trap there? This idea that we would look at those who live a lifestyle that we would say this is immoral. Can't you see that you're immoral? Can't you see the pattern that you're leaving for the kids? Can't you see how you're decaying the fabric of this country? Can't you see all these things? Let me answer this question for you. No, they can't because they disagree with you. They don't believe any of those things are true. They believe you're a moron. But how much more beautiful is it to walk to this person, to seek to be friendly with them, to engage them at the level of friend, to engage them as somebody who has worth and has value. Many of us see immigrants coming to our south border and we say these are people that are going to destroy our society. Pastor Jose preached a wonderful sermon calling us to love these people and see these people as opportunities to extend the gospel, not opportunities to decay the rule of law and to destroy our society and to put us at great risk and great harm. I'm not here to debate immigration policy. What I'm here to tell you is that God has not put you here to do that either. If you are a Christian, your first priority is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is uncomfortable. It is difficult. It means sacrificing. It means keeping your mouth shut. It means losing so that he might win. But it's so worth it. So incredibly worth it that we might lose every single argument and win men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to sacrifice that? If that's what it looked like in your life to become all things for all people, would you be willing to sacrifice that? I'm terrified that if each of us were lined up, that we would answer one way in the collective and we would answer another way within the silence of our own heart. Because I think so many of us have made an idol of our perspective. We've made an idol of our worldview and our ideology. That for that even to be called into question makes us recoil. It makes us want to leave this conversation, to get up and to leave this place. And can I tell you, I feel that pain. As I preached this in my heart this week, some of your, your faces came to mind. And I just, like in all honesty, I just thought, I wish they'd go to another church. They're so hard to love. They're so hard to care for. hard to care anything for. They're ugly to me. They're ugly to my family. They disagree with me. I don't like their worldview. Wouldn't they be happier somewhere else? And I'm reminded, you were put here to serve them, not them here to serve you. The people in your life, you were placed here for their advantage, not them for yours. God has called us and commissioned us to be engaging and to engage. Some of us need to break the patterns that we normally engage with. That if I were to ask you, can you name 10 non-Christians, you would struggle. You begin to name popular, popular people or people you know in community, but not people in your life. You have no opportunity to extend the gospel because you've insulated yourself against people who, in your mind, you think would do damage to the gospel. How can we reach those we're not involved with? Let us become all things to all people, that by all means Christ might save some. 
Look at 23 and let this become kind of our closing thought. Paul writes and he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I do all of these things. I'm not paid. I'm derided. I'm beaten. I'm mocked. I hang out with people that I don't really like. And if it was up to me, I wouldn't spend any time with. I do it all for the sake of the gospel because he recognizes the expansion of the gospel is so much more valuable than my perspective. It's so much more valuable than my comfort. And by extending it, by living a contextualized and compelling faith in Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to share with those recipients of it in its blessings that the gospel of Jesus Christ will become more pronounced in my life because of sharing it with those that I formerly disagreed with and was far off from. The good news of Jesus Christ is that someone did that with us. Somebody who loved Jesus enough to share the gospel with us so that we might be brought in from the cold, from the dark, from being lost, we've been found. Let me pray for us and ask God to transform our hearts. Father, this morning, God, I pray that you would, I just don't know, and I pray that you would build down the walls that we're already erecting, you would keep us sensitive to you, to your spirit. God, I pray for the people in this room that in their minds, that you would begin to formulate how they can impact the people around them. That you would call to their minds the face of someone that you have set for them to share the gospel with. Somebody that perhaps they despise, somebody that they don't understand. Help them to see the worth and the value of those around them so that by all means they might reach some. Father, I pray for those in this room who have yet to come to know you as Savior and Lord. I'm thankful for the Christians in this room that would see worth and value in them. And God, I pray that they would see worth and value in themselves stemming from you. That they would hear the goodness of your gospel. That you love them, that you gave your son for them. That they might be forgiven their sins that they might be redeemed. And so, Father, I pray for hearts to be transformed, ours to be softened, and those of those who don't know you to be warmed, to be changed. That we might all be a people dependent upon Jesus and your Spirit living in our lives. And so we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.